The mouth and the nose is our flavor sensing equipment, and it's really, really important. Oh, whole foods are blander today. I, I think that's certain. What we think of as flavor, these are chemical compounds that are a currency of information in nature. Well, then you look at Italy. They're eating food that is so delicious, everybody wants to travel and eat the delicious food that they're eating, and their rate of obesity is less than 8%. What on earth is going on? Vitamins have no calories. You're going to accuse them of playing a role in the obesity epidemic? Well, the answer is yes, I am. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends. This has honestly been one of my favorite episodes to date. I knew I had to read Mark Schatzker's work for so long, ever since Jen had been talking about the Dorito effect on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I read his newest book, The End of Craving, and then immediately realized I needed to read all of his books ASAP. This stuff is truly mind-blowing. We talk about a lot of cool things in this episode, including the shocking role that vitamin fortification of foods is possibly having on your health, the role of uncertainty in foods, plant chemicals as a language, whether or not we're actually evolved to want to become fat, and so many other things. I do want to say a little disclaimer for all of you vegans and vegetarians, stick it out through the intro. I know the beginning is very meat heavy, but I promise you will want to keep going and listening to all of it because it is just that good. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash end of craving. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram, find the Friday announcement post there. And again, comment to enter to win something that I love. If you are enjoying this show, it would mean the absolute world, world, world if you could take a brief moment and subscribe and or write a review in Apple Podcast. I know I've been saying iTunes this whole time, but then shout out to my friend Brad Kearns. He was like, you know, it's not called iTunes anymore. Subscribing and writing a review helps so much. So thank you so much in advance for that. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market. 
ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experience the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code Melanie Avalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. That's Avalon X to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now. Before we change to subscriptions, you can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which 
mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter, and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin, so you can truly feel good about what you put on, and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Mark Schatzker. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. Here is the backstory on today's conversation. So as you guys know, I am also the host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, and I used to host it with Jen Stevens. And Jen would always, always, always bring up this book called The Dorito Effect. It came into play with a lot of questions that we would get with listeners about cravings and food struggles and food addiction. And she would always refer listeners to The Dorito Effect. And what's funny, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but like when I heard the title, I was like, oh, well, it's probably just talking about how processed food is addicting. I didn't know the extent to the depths of mind-blowing facts that are in that book. So I'd been wanting to interview the author, Mark Schatzker, because of how much Jen had been talking about it. And then our mutual friend, Marty Kendall, brought up his work because I think he had interviewed you, Mark, and said that I had to interview you. So I was so excited because I've been wanting to interview you. So we booked the interview. I went and read Mark's newest book, which is called The End of Craving, Recovering the Lost Wisdom of Eating Well friends. We're going to talk about it in this episode, but I can't even describe the mind-blowingness of things in this book. It was so incredible. Then I went back and actually read The Dorito Effect and was embarrassed to think that I had ever just thought that it was just about the addiction of processed food. It is so much more than that, which again, we will get into. And then I was like, well, I've got to read all of his books because these are just so amazing. So I read his book, Steak, One Man's Search for the World's Tastiest Piece of Beef. 
I am a huge steak lover. I didn't know there was that much to learn about steak. (laughs) I learned so much. Right after I finished reading it, I like had to have steak and I I ate a piece of steak and it was incredible. So in any case, I've really been looking forward to this for so long. On top of that, I just want to mention, not only are these books incredible and science-driven and we're going to talk about all of it, but they're also very fun reads. Mark is really funny. They're just great books. So Mark, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, that was a great intro. Thank you. Sorry, I've been like waiting for this moment because because normally when I have guests on this show, especially if they have a lot of books, I mean, I try to read as much as I can. So I usually read one, maybe two, but I read your At the End of Craving and I was like, I have to read everything that this man writes like ever. So in any case, just to introduce you more on a personal level to our audience, what is your personal story? What led you to where you are with these books. I mean, steak is so unique in and of itself. You traveled the world trying to find, you know, what makes steak taste good and who has the best steak and why. And then these books like The Dorito Effect and The End of Craving with the science of food and what it's doing to us addiction-wise and obesity. Why? (laughs) Why are you doing what, what you're doing today? So it all really starts with a moment. And shortly after I graduated from university, I went down to visit my brother who was living in Chile at the time. This is, I think, 1996. And we went out to the beach for the weekend. And Chileans, you know, have kind of a rivalry with Argentina. So it really says something that if Chileans are going to buy a good steak, they buy Argentine steak. So my brother bought a full tenderloin, Argentine tenderloin. We brought it out to the beach and we grilled it over coals. And it was just, you know, to perfection, as the cliche says, nice and pinky red in the middle and, and, you know, that beautiful crust on the outside. And I popped a morsel of that steak in my mouth. And it's like the whole world came to a screeching halt. It was just freaking awesome. And I just asked what I thought was a simple question that really ended up changing the trajectory of my life. And the question I asked was, why does this steak taste so good? And I went back home. I live in Toronto, in Canada, which is from the point of view of kind of agricultural economy, very similar to the US. And I was, you know, it's like, okay, I got to reproduce that steak. So I thought, okay, it's the recipe. Yeah, Chileans and Argentines are, they, you know, they're purists. They only put salt, maybe pepper on a steak. So that's it. So I went out and bought a steak, put salt on it, little pepper. And it was like drinking salt water, only meaty salt water. Like, you're just like, this is not the same thing. What's going on? So I start to investigate. I call the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. I go to the fancy butcher shops. They all say it's marbling. You want marbling, get marbling. You want corn fed beef. So I do that. And it's like, fatty salt water that leaves a greasy aftertaste in your mouth. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? And I just start to research it and research it. And I realized there's really quite a deep story here because everybody loves steak. Everybody loves meat, certainly. It's kind of like the king of meats. There's no chicken house. There's no pork house. But we have such a thing as a steakhouse, which is a place you go for a special occasion. But the weird thing is, is you go to a steakhouse and they bring you this menu, which got maybe three or four cuts of steak. And then they bring you the wine list, which is as thick as a Bible. And they can tell you everything. This wine came from Spain, and it was made in this year from these grapes. And this is how it was matured. And then you say, well, where'd the steak come from? And they're like, well, there's a truck that drops it off every Thursday. And that's about all they can tell you. And I thought, this is odd. We love steak. We don't know anything about it. So the more I researched it, the more I realized there's actually quite a story to tell about steak, because this this meat that we love is going downhill in quality super, super fast. And I would say most people... Even steak lovers have never really had what I would consider to be a great steak. And I, I don't say that from a snobby point of view. I say it's kind of like a, it's unjust and tragic. People need to be eating 
better steak. And as I researched that book, I realized that I was observing a trend. We've gotten very good at producing a lot of beef, and that has come at the consequence of quality. It's getting blander. But this, I noticed, is maybe not just the story of beef. And I started to look around, and I realized this is actually happening to all the food that we grow, that we've gotten very, very good at producing lots of food. This is good. We have lots of mouths to feed, and we keep on building suburbs and all this lush prime farmland. So farmland getting scarcer, more mouths to feed, it's, it's a good thing. We've gotten better at producing a lot of food. But we have not noticed that it has come at a consequence, which is that food is getting blander. It's also losing nutritional density. And then I noticed, well, what is this thing called flavor? Because at the same time, there's been a counter trend where processed food is getting more and more flavorful. So flavor is being leached out of good food and being, you know, injected into the food we shouldn't eat. And this was broadly the basis for my second book, The Dorito Effect, which looks at the history of food through the lens of flavor. And it's a, a book that I felt was timely because, you know, we're all kind of nutritionists. We all talk about fat and carbs and calories. And we act as though nutrition starts from the neck down, that this thing that goes on in your, like, in your face, in your mouth, this chewing and eating and enjoyment is just totally superfluous, has nothing to do with the real, you know, biochemical business of nutrition, which happens once the food lands in your stomach and goes into the body. And this is kind of silly, because when you think about it, we all, every time we sit down to eat, we want to enjoy our meal, we want it to be flavorful. How is it that no one has ever talked about flavor? So I set out in that book to talk about flavor, to try and get a conversation going about flavor, because not only do I think it's important, I think it is the most important aspect of the food we eat is the flavor, because it is how our brain engages with food. Well, after I wrote The Dorito Effect, I started thinking more and more about how it is we've corrupted our relationship with food. On a very simple level, you can say that when we put flavorings on food, it makes people eat them. If you think of soft drinks, they're all just bubbly soda water with lots of sugar, 7-Up, Sprite, Coke, Pepsi, Dr. Pepper, they're all the same, nutritionally speaking, sugar water. And everyone says, oh, it's those sugary drinks. Well, is it? Because would we drink as much of this stuff if it was just bubbly sugar water? I would say no. It's the flavorings that give them their distinctiveness, that give them their character. So I think you can say, yes, these flavorings are making us eat more. And I think that is directly playing a role in the obesity epidemic. But in the end of craving, I want to look even deeper and say exactly what is going on. What is the brain's relationship with food? How is it that the brain thinks about food? Because it, the brain has its own secret life about food, which is the appetite, which we experience, but we can't control. In that book, I really sought to understand how the way we've changed the sensory qualities of food with things like flavorings and artificial sweeteners and fat replacers how that has changed our relationship with food. And, and this is where I think I've gotten the closest to finding something kind of explosive in terms of pulling back the veil and seeing exactly what's gone wrong with food and how it has corrupted us. And, and this book, I mean, all the books kind of really changed me and changed my approach, but this book more than any of them really changed my understanding, not just of food, but of, I would say, of our very fundamental nature as humans. So that's a very long answer to your simple question. So I grew up in Memphis and you said you went to a famous barbecue joint. Was it the Rendezvous? It was not the Rendezvous. I'm trying to remember now. what Germantown Commissary. It may have been that. In fact, I think I went to more than one, but I should have kept better track. <laughs> because you think at the time, of course I'm going to remember. It's like when you wake up in the middle of the night and have a good idea. You're like, yeah, I'm definitely going to remember. And then No, I'm not surprised you don't remember. I mean, there are so many restaurants and you went to so many restaurants. I can't even imagine. Yeah, there were so many just 
random fun facts I learned in that book, like things like, was it Angus beef that it, it, one of the types of beef is literally just, ba- or was it black Wagyu? No, no. Yeah. Certified Angus beef. It's just what color cow they are or something. Yeah. 51% black hided. So that basically says that 51% of the coat has to be black. Now, how would anyone measure that? They, they don't have some kind of fancy computer that, that takes a snapshot of the hide. It's just done you know, people look at it. Some people say they don't, they don't look at it. They're just looking at marbling. If people think that they're, you know, when they buy certified Angus beef, that it's sort of like buying a Cabernet Sauvignon, like, like you're getting some genetic expression of an interesting, you know, beefy character type. That's just not true. It it probably just says you're not getting a really old cow. You're getting something that's been decently fed in terms of it's going to be, you know, have marbling and so forth. But it's, it's yet another of these, there's so much, Corruption is the wrong word. There's just so many things in the meat industry that are just so disappointing that are just sort of empty marketing schemes that are, are like shiny baubles that get the consumer's attention, but I don't really think add up to a whole lot. Yeah, well, it's just crazy that something so arbitrary would be used for that. And I remember I worked for a long time in steakhouses as a server and bartender, and I remember feeling almost ashamed and embarrassed because it was at the time I was already into health and nutrition and grass-fed and all of that. And we'd have to do these spiels. I worked at Ruth Chris and Fleming's, and we'd have to do these spiels about you know, the finest USDA prime, you know, beef. And in my head, I was like, I know this is like so arbitrary. Like it doesn't say anything about the health of the, you know, the health quality of the meat or if it actually, I think if it actually is good. So I just, it's all very, very fascinating to me. Yeah. It's um, when I wrote that book, everybody would always say, you know, what's your favorite steakhouse? And I would always say like, well, it just comes down to who's got the best decor or the decor you like the most. Cause they're all serving the same steak. And everyone was like, you, you can't be serious. And, but no, they are. That, that's it's, Anyway, that's the way it is. So where did you have on your travels the best steak? I would say I had three. You know, it's funny, actually. When I started that book, it was, you know, one man search for the best. And I remember I, I interviewed the chef Alain Ducasse in Paris, and he said, you know, you're making a mistake. There's no best. There's, there's, there's many bests. And he said, no, well, you can take all the many bests. There's going to be one that stands out above the others. He said, no. I really disagreed with him at the time. But since then, I realized that he was right, which is to say, I, I want to say something as cliche as variety is the spice of life, but but y- you it is interesting having different things. It, that, that sounds kind of empty and dumb. I'll, I'll put it in a different context. I was thinking about burgers lately. Recently, I became a devotee of the Smash Burger. Really, really loved it. And, and that's all the kind of burgers I was making. And then I made kind of more of your classic steakhouse burger that was like a thicker patty, rare in the middle. And you know something? That was an awesome burger too. And I realized I like them both. They're both different and there's nothing wrong with that. So as to get to your question, there were three steaks over the course of that book that really blew me away. One was a Highland steak that I had in Scotland. Uh, Highland is a, if you've ever seen it, it's that, that really hairy breed. It almost looks like a sheep and it's kind of red and it's got these big horns. It, it does well on really marginal terrain. You can, you can stick those things on, on some weather-beaten island in North Scotland and it will somehow survive. And that's what they did. And then they would, they would drive them into the valleys to fatten up. Uh, for the market. And that's called finishing. And that's uh, how, you know, it's when cattle put on weight. And that's really where cowboy culture came from. Cowboys are cow herders. It's not as glamorous when you think of it that way, but that's what they did. And the cattle drives were just basically cowboys, cow herders, slowly herding the cattle to market and getting them fat along the way. So I had this Highland steak in Scotland, but honestly, it was the only steak I really could cut with a fork. It was that tender. And it was just so wonderfully flavorful. And all it ate was grass. 
And that was a point that Angus Mackay, that the gentleman I bought the steak from, made a point of telling me. I had a steak in Argentina. Argentina's famous, and I just talked about it earlier, but Argentina is not today what it was 25 years ago. Globalization has caught up with Argentina. They've taken their very best pasture land, and they're using it to grow soybeans to fatten pigs in China. It's quite sad. Most of their beef, or a, a, certainly a, a substantial percentage of it, is now grain-finished in feedlots, just like the ones we have here. And they're not using their best land to... F- to finish cattle on grass. So it's not to say you can't get a great steak in Argentina anymore, but it's hard. But I did have one spectacularly good steak in Argentina, a really, really good steak. And I also had just some, and I've had more than one since, a ranch in Idaho called Alder Spring Ranch, the Elzinga family. They they grow beautiful, beautiful beef there. And, and that was just a, a wonderful steak. And I think that tells us that as bad as things have got, we, we still have the terrain, we still have the terroir, and we still have good people that can create great beef. And how about Florence? Is that how you say your name? No, Florence. So Florence was a, you know, I thought it was important, a couple things. I thought, well, I should try and, you know, this whole idea of raising cattle start to seem kind of fun, although it's, it's a very hard work. And I also want to see if I could do something interesting. So and I also like the idea that, that, you know, breeds come from a certain place and they say a certain thing. Well, I'm Canadian and there is a breed of, there's actually more than one, but one, one of the breeds of cattle that come from Canada is called the Canadienne, which is a Quebec dairy breed, which comes originally from the north of France, the Channel Islands, very similar to a Jersey or a Guernsey. These are celebrated dairy breeds. That's the kind of cow you'd want if you want to make like a really good cheese or a really good butter. But what most people don't know is that these dairy breeds produce superb beef. The problem is their carcasses are, are just, their cuts just aren't very full. So these kind of like wimpy looking steaks that taste amazing. So I got a retired heifer, a heifer that I, I, I think actually I was told it was a heifer. I think it was a full-on mama cow that had just been retired. She was done. I bought two of them and I gave them two names that I found from, well, if you want a little bit about Canadian history, what was called New France was being populated by these fur traders from, from France. They needed wives. So they rounded up a bunch of women, orphans and widows and, or I guess, and Sometimes they said prostitutes, and they were called the Fidua, the, the, the daughters of the king. And they brought them to New France. And I, I looked up on the old ship's manifest, their names, and one of the names was Florence. So I decided to name my cow Florence. And I, I raised her on a farm about a couple hours north of Toronto where I live, and they produce a lot of apples around there. So I thought, I'm going to try and get her fat on apples. So I bought like all these gigantic you know, quantities of apples and fed her and got her nice and fat. And the day came to slaughter her. And I thought this was also important. I can't be an advocate of beef eating and talk about steak when when behind all this is this apparent atrocity of, of killing the animal. So I thought, I got to do this. Now, it's not legal for me to step into what they call the knockbox and kill her myself, but I could be right there. And I was really, it was a very emotional day. I remember I showed up at the barn early, early in the morning at like 6 a.m. And, and, I, and I bought some local craft beer and I, I poured it into this wooden bucket and and I fed it to her and she, she, she just downed it. It's like a frat party. She just downed it like three three tins and one big gulp. And I brought her to the to this little country slaughterhouse. And to my great surprise, it actually wasn't this negative, horrific experience because they don't really, re- if it's done properly, they, they have no idea what's going on. They just sort of walk into this room and, you know, everything turns to black. It sounds odd. I don't want to say it was uplifting, but something about it deepened my understanding of life. And I felt really strange about that. But I remember talking to Temple Grandin, the, the celebrated autistic woman who's, who's got this empathic ability to understand the life of animals. She said that it's a very common experience that people from the city who come to the country and, and actually see what agriculture is like, and, and especially those things about death, these, these subjects that we're so afraid of, when you come face to face with them, they're not as grisly and frightening and, and horrific as we think. 
so that was a real learning experience for me. And it, it deepened, I would say, my love of that beef because I understood her life and I participated in, in giving what I hope was at least a, certainly a good last chapter to her life. Well, I will say that chapter about that whole experience was, it was riveting. Like I was, it was riveting. And I agree so much what you're saying about, I have not had that experience, but I think it's such a tragedy today how disconnected we are from our food, especially with the whole, you know, conventional agriculture. And there's something to, I mean, the farthest back, I guess, would be like, you know, actual hunting. And that would be, you know, really having that connection. But one step up, like with what you experienced, I bet if everybody had that experience, we would have a different understanding of our food every time we ate, I would think. I think also people naively think that it's possible to make certain food choices that don't, that there's no death involved, that everybody's kind of holding hands and everything's rainbows. And that's just not the case. Life is complex and there are trade-offs and, and death is a part of life for all of us. I think I think what we, we need to get rid of is suffering, but suffering and death are two very different things. I agree. I agree. So glad you mentioned the apples that you fed to her. That would be a good topic to discuss. So one of the things that you talk about is the massive amount of compounds found in food, like natural, well, <laughs> I can't say natural flavors. I'll let you talk about it. The, the, basically the, um, like the VOCs and the secondary compounds and all these compounds in food that give it flavor to us. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about those compounds, how many there are, because I, I believe there's like thousands of them. I have some follow-up questions about them, but what is going on with these compounds? I mean, what is their purpose? Like, is the purpose of flavor compounds in food to attract us eating them? Like, what is the purpose? Well, that's a great question. So let's start at the beginning with, with this idea of compounds and chemicals. And it's really interesting to think that, you know, we often say when you look at processed food, the longer the ingredients, the ingredient list, the worse that is. I think that's actually a pretty good rule to go by. But if you could actually see the ingredient list of something natural, like a strawberry or an apple, that ingredient list would absolutely dwarf these tiny, skimpy little ingredient lists we find in processed food. The number of compounds that have been found inside something as simple as a strawberry, are, are it's in the tens of thousands. Plants are the chemical wizards of the natural world. They excel at producing compounds. And for a very long time, we had no idea what most of them were doing. We knew about the important things like sugar, and like lignin, which gives a plant structure. So we would call those primary compounds because they're involved in, the, in just the basic business of life. But then there's these other compounds, and we had no idea what they were. They, they were just called plant secondary compounds. It was just basically this word secondary, just put them in this, like, kind of, we don't know what they're doing. Some people thought maybe they, these are like waste products that the plant can't get rid of, or, or they're just things that were produced by accident. And what we learned is that they are produced for strategic reasons. So something like the aroma of a flower is produced for strategic reasons. It's the plant trying to attract an insect to come and fertilize, to, to come and pollinate it, or in some cases to repel. But then we get these interesting situations where a plant will produce a poison. And to most, virtually all the insects in the meadow, this poison says, stay away, this will kill you. But there will be a single insect that has developed a tolerance. And in fact, for these insects, that poison becomes the calling card and that becomes the thing that they crave. Uh, some scientists call them trigger substances because these compounds are the ones that basically say, eat this. And I think it's important to understand, we're talking about insects, but on a very simple, that, that, that might sound simple, 
but we are the same way. Flavor is is our brain's way of understanding what is in the food we eat. Now, that might sound really weird, but it's important to understand that there are important nutrients in food that we need. Some of them we can taste, like sugar is a really good example of there's a simple carbohydrate that we can directly detect. It hits our tongue and bing, goes right to the brain. We can taste sugar. So many of the nutrients that we need are too stable to detect the vitamins, the minerals. So flavor is the brain's way of connecting the things that can detect, which are these volatile organic compounds, basically aromatic vapors, the stuff it can smell, the brain can smell. It attaches these, these flavor images, if you will, to the nutrients that it later analyzes. And this is how the brain uses the taste and flavor of food as a kind of nutritional map for the world. Now, that sounds really complex, but I'll explain how it works. I spent a lot of time with them a scientist named Fred Provenza at Utah State University. And he did a great experiment that really illustrates this well. He took some sheep and he made them deficient in phosphorus, which is a necessary mineral. If you don't get enough phosphorus, you're going to die. It is that important. He made them deficient and, and they, you know, they, they don't feel well. They start pawing at the earth and they do weird things like they try and eat the droppings or the urine of other sheep, which isn't stupid, actually, because that's a good way to get phosphorus. You can't get any. And then here's what he did is he put a tube down their throat into their rumen, which is their stomach, and he would either, he would feed them a feed, a feed that didn't have any nutritional quality, but it tasted like coconut. And when they would taste this coconut, they would get an infusion of phosphorus in their belly. Then the next day, he would give them a feed that tasted like maple, and then they would get an infusion of water. And over time, they learned that coconut equals phosphorus. So at a later date, if he made them deficient once again, in phosphorus, what would they do? They would go searching for food that tasted like coconut because the brain said, Co this coconut flavor is what leads me to the phosphorus that I need. Now, you might say, okay, that sounds interesting, but what if sheep just like coconut? Because coconut's delicious. Who doesn't love coconut? Well, so in the other pen, he reversed it. And in the other pen, he paired maple with phosphorus. And the same thing happened, that when he would later make these sheep deficient in phosphorus, they would seek maple. So, we're just like sheep. We have this sensing equipment right in the middle of our face. The mouth and the nose is our flavor sensing equipment. And it's really, really important. To, just to get an understanding of how important this is, if you think of your DNA as the instruction manual to make you, the biggest chapter is on your flavor sensing equipment, the nose and mouth. So, it must be very important from an evolutionary point of view. Why would we put all that energy into making it? Why would we have this vivid experience of flavor if it meant nothing? What it means is very important, and, and, it's, and it's equally important that we, that we are mindful of it and that we take it seriously. That is so fascinating. Okay, some follow-up questions. One, it's interesting. When I was reading about all of the flavor compounds in food, I was thinking, I mean, that's, I mean, you said tens of thousands or wait, tens of thousands or over 10,000? No, tens of thousands. And these aren't just necessarily flavor compounds. These are just compounds, some of which will be flavorful, some of which, I mean, they, they do all sorts of things, tannins and flavonoids, and there's just lots and lots of them. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. 
May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come... Definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. What's interesting though is, I mean, that's way more than our language. Because I was thinking about it. I was like, they could have an entire language. Like they could be talking. I mean, they have enough information to like talk. Not that we can read it. I would be so curious to like, be in the mind of like these plants and wondering like what they're actually communicating, if that's even a possibility. No, no, that's, that's actually, that's a sound idea with a lot of evidence for it. What we think of as flavor, these volatile chemicals, volatile just means that there's like this vapor that goes around. That is a, a medium of communication in the natural world. There's a compound that was discovered in the 60s that makes uh, berry, it's called cis-3-hexanol, and it makes berry flavorings just seem more vivid, more realistic, because they're an essential part of berry flavorings. It's sort of the smell of cut grass. It smells a little bit like carrots as well. Well, plants use these compounds as a means of communicating. An example would be something like a cotton plant. When a cotton plant is being eaten by a caterpillar, it will release cis-3-hexanol. And this is an alarm compound. And what it does is it signals a bunch of parasitic wasps and saying, help, I'm being eaten by caterpillars, come help me. So what happens is this compound, this alarm goes up, the wasps sense it, they're like, there's caterpillars, and they go and inject their eggs in the caterpillars, the eggs hatch, and literally eat the caterpillar from the inside. And thus, kill the predator that's eating the cotton plant or the corn plant. So what we think of as flavor, these are chemical compounds that are a currency of information in nature. And I would say they are the same thing with us. What signals to an insect that there's caterpillars afoot to us will signal there is nutrition afoot. Mm. All of that DNA and that information, and even like thinking of it like a language, you just talked about the experiment where the pigs learned that phosphorus was associated with these different flavors, but are we innately born with any ideas about these flavors? Like, can we crave something we've never had? 
That's a really interesting question, and it's something that's debated in science, like these nature-nurture things. I mean, they're they're very difficult to study. You know, one of the reasons it's challenging to study is because you're exposed to the flavors of the food that your mother was eating while you're in the womb and the amniotic fluid. So even before you're born, this will have an influence. There's, And we've studied this in humans, we've studied this in animals. Is there a hardwired nature to this? Or is it all learned? It makes more sense for it to be learned. It makes more sense for you to be born into a world where there could be any number of chaotic things going on you can learn. Now, you might think, well, wouldn't it be great if you just entered that world with like a like a cheat sheet? It would be, but, but what if things change in the world? Then you're born with the wrong set of instructions. I have a feeling if we ever truly understand it, we're going to find out that it's a bit of both, or that it's going to be something like language, where language is learned, but there is a hardwired kind of internal grammar to how language works. And I think the same thing will be true of flavor, that that although there's an extremely strong learned component, that there is a certain way that it works. Okay. Yeah. I mean, my closest experience to it personally that I can think of is I went through this period of time where I was having a lot of health issues and I like woke up one day and I was like, I need beet greens. Like I was craving beet greens and I don't think I'd ever had beet greens before. Um, so, and I remember I went to the grocery store and I got the beets, but they had cut off all of the greens. And I was like, where do I get the beet greens? And they just looked at me like I was crazy. They were like, we cut it. They're like, we cut it off for a purpose. I was like, but I want the leaves. It's funny though. In Germany, they love the beet greens, for example, and we cut them off. It's weird. So, so, you know, one man's garbage is another man's treasure, as they say. Yeah. But I just remember thinking like, why am I craving this when I don't remember like having had it before? So it's it's just so, so fascinating to me. So another question related to all of this, one of the compounds you talk about are these VOCs and was it volatile organic compounds? Volatile organic compounds, which just means like an organic chemical that, that you can smell. It's sort of like a vapor in the air. It's volatile. It's not stable. And you talk about their effect on perceived sweetness and how our perception of sweetness of natural food doesn't always correlate to the actual sugar content because these VOCs can make it taste, I guess, sweeter or less sweet. Yeah. So this was some really interesting research that was done at the University of Florida on tomatoes. And what they found, this was some work that was done by Harry Klee and a woman named Linda Bartoshuk and others, a whole team of, of great researchers. What they found is that, so there's about 26 compounds, organic, you know, volatile organic compounds uh, scientists just call them volatiles, that contribute to the what we would call the liking score of a tomato. So if they're there in the right amount, you bite into that tomato and it's like, oh my God, that's just such an amazing tomato. If they're not there, that's just a, like a bland tomato. And what's interesting is that, that is that this can also affect our experience of how sweet that tomato tastes, independent of the sugar. Now, the tomato is going to have some sugar in it, but it can improve the flavor so much that it's almost like the enjoyment leaks into our experience of the sweetness and, and, make, and it makes it seem sweeter than it actually is. That's just really fascinating. And it actually, I connected you to my friend, Bill Tanser. For listeners, I'll put a link to in the show notes to both Bill's interview and Marty Kindle's interview. But the reason I thought of him immediately with you is because he runs Cygnos, which makes CGM's continuous glucose monitors accessible to the general public. And we had had this really great conversation where he had done tests on like every variety of apple that he could find to see how it measured on his CGM. And he was talking about how 
the CGM didn't always match, like the blood sugar spike didn't always match his perception of sweetness. And so I was emailing him because I was like, I'm reading this book and maybe it's because of these VOCs. But in any case, another question that relates to all of that is you talk about the work of, I forgot her first name, but is it Smalls? Oh, Dana Small. Yes, Dana. This study that she did where they had drinks that tasted like they had a different amount of calories than they actually potentially did have. And she used uh, maltodextrin, which we can't taste to create the sweetness. And then sucralose, I think, to make the perception of sweetness. Yeah. So basically there was like five drinks and they ranged in calories. Or she did two different experiments. She did different experiments. But there was experiments where the drinks had a certain amount of calories and it either did or did not taste like what it was. So now I'm creating this huge picture and I have a lot of questions about it and it does relate to what I was just talking about. So what happens when we taste something like a drink today that does not match what we think it tastes like sweetness wise? Yeah. So I'll, I'll frame this because this is a really important experiment. I mean, super important. And, and this was uh, something I wrote about in the end of craving. So, so, and I say that just to, to give the context is this is the book where I was trying to figure out exactly how it is this sensory tinkering. What is the effect that it's having on the brain? So this experiment began with what was a pretty simple question. Dana Small, who's a neuroscientist at Yale, she wanted to know, is it possible to create a drink that is just as rewarding, but has fewer calories, which is sort of the dream of things like artificial sweeteners, you know, create that flavor experience, that taste experience, but at none of the calories, which wouldn't that be a great thing if we could do that, right? So the question is, how, how do you test that? And this is what makes Dana such an interesting scientist is she came up with, she created five drinks and she used the artificial sweetener sucralose to make them all equally sweet. They all tasted like they had about 75 calories worth of sugar in them. She then used a taste, a tasteless man-made, human-made carbohydrate called maltodextrin to give each different drink a different calorie payload. So one drink had zero calories, one had, I think, 37.5, one had 75, one had 112, and one had 150. Each of these drinks all had, they all had their kind of distinctive color and flavor. And she gave them to a bunch of subjects and said, just take these drinks and just take them home and drink them. And what happens is their brain, your brain is constantly learning. What we think of as flavor is information, and your brain logs it every time you, you, know, you eat or drink something. Your, your brain is creating a log. And she brought them back in, and she put them in the brain scanner to measure the response in their brain to see what would happen. And, and this is where things get interesting. What, what do you think is going to happen? Is the brain going to say, I liked all those drinks equally because they were all equally sweet, and sweetness is all the brain cares about? Or is it going to be that 150-calorie drink because the brain is an analyzer and they might have tasted all the same sweet, but the brain knew that one of them packs more calories than the others. Well, the response was just sort of a real head-scratcher. It turned out the 75-calorie drink right in the middle, not the one with the least, not the one with the most, but the one right in the middle got the biggest brain response. It's like the other ones just didn't get like almost no response at all. It was really strange. It was so odd that Dana Small did the experiment over And it happened again. She's like, what is going on? So the next thing, she puts her subjects in an indirect calorimeter. This is a device that measures the thermic effect of food. So when you consume calories, you start to burn calories just processing those, and and you can measure that. So the more calories you consume, the bigger the thermic effect. So one day, a young woman in her 20s comes in, and she drinks this 75-calorie drink. And just as you'd expect, there's this beautiful little plume of heat. Everything's going just as it should. 
A few days later, she comes in and drinks the 150 calorie drink. Well, there should be a larger plume of heat because there were more calories. There's no heat. The metabolic response is flat. And this is like, what? This just makes no sense. This is contrary to what all the textbooks teach you about the physiology of how calories are processed in the body. And Dana is trying to figure out what is going on. And then it hits her. It's the number 75 because the drink that was metabolized properly and the drink that got the biggest metabolic response, sorry, that got the brain response, that got the brain excited was the 75 calorie drink. And let's remember those drinks also tasted like they had 75 calories. So this was the drink where the taste matched the calories. That drink was matched. All the other drinks were mismatched, where the perceived calories, the sweetness, which is a perception of caloric intensity, did not match the calories that were delivered. And this was a huge moment for Dana because she re- and, and for all of us, because she realized that the sweet taste isn't just this sort of frivolous, like, oh, I like that. It is information. It is telling the brain crucial information about the nutritional content of the food that is being delivered into the body. And when that information is sound, everything works perfectly. The, the calories are metabolized properly. The brain develops a response. When that information is incorrect, it all just gets hung up and goes squirrely. The calories aren't metabolized properly. The brain doesn't respond to it properly. She did further experiments and found that you start to get conditions that look like metabolic disease as far as insulin resistance. She did an experiment with adolescents, and she actually had to stop that one in its tracks because she drew blood from three of the subjects early on, and they were already looking like they were pre-diabetic. So this tells us that this, this idea, this thing called sweetness, is crucially important. This is information, and it also tells us the accuracy of that information is important because now we have to pan back and then think about this in an, in an evolutionary context. This senses that we have for flavor, for sweetness, for fat, up until about 60, 70 years ago, these were all really stable. Generally speaking, if something tasted sweet, it had calories. If it tasted sweeter, it had more calories. There's, there's things like, you know, those tomatoes, but where, where you can see a little bit of di- divergence. But generally speaking, sweetness is a really good indicator of the, of the calories you're getting. Well, it's only been in the last handful of decades that we started to create things like like artificial sweeteners, things like xylitol, saccharin, sucralose. We started to think we can fool this dumb brain of ours and let it think it's getting sweetness, but we're so smart we're actually going to deliver fewer calories. We created fat replacers in the late 80s. Everybody remember, well, maybe not everybody, they're not as old as me, but we start to get this low fat craze and you start to get diet this and light salad dressings and light mayonnaise. Well, how was that created? It was created by food scientists creating fat replacers. These are compounds that create the experience of rich, delicious fat in the mouth, but deliver just a dribbling of calories. Well, if your brain's a moron and it's just on this lifelong quest to just stuff itself full of calories, this is a really good idea. Just fool that idiot of a brain. But if it turns out your brain is smart and it's it's really fixated on measurement, this is going to backfire because your brain's going to say, okay, I thought I was getting calories because it tasted sweet and I didn't get calories. But then the next day, I thought I was getting calories, and I did get calories. And then the next day, I thought I was getting fat, and I got fat. But then the day after that, I thought I was getting fat, and I didn't get what I thought. Well, what this creates is what's very known simply in psychological circles as uncertainty. Another word for it is reward prediction error. That means the reward that was predicted by the brain did not arrive. And then we ask a simple question. Well, 
How does a brain respond when the reward it predicted didn't get it? And what does the brain do? It gets hyper motivated. It says, I didn't get what I think I was going to get. So I'm going to work extra hard to get that because I want to get what I think I need. We have to understand this in an evolutionary context. Something as important as calories. If the brain doesn't get what it thinks it's going to get, it has to work harder to get it. Otherwise, it risks suffering a loss. And if it keeps on suffering a loss, it's going to die. So evolution didn't craft us to be kind of on the road to obesity, constantly shoving food in our face. What it did craft us to do is to respond to uncertainty with excess motivation. So we have created a sensory environment where our food is giving us all sorts of inconsistent signals, where we think we're getting calories and sometimes we get them, sometimes we don't, sometimes we get even more. The way the brain responds is with excess motivation. We want to eat more calories than we need because we've sort of goaded ourselves. We've whipped ourselves into this sort of frenzy of craving calories. And this is exactly what we see when we look at the brain scans of people with obesity. The knock on people with obesity is that they indulge in pleasure too much. And this is wrong. Obesity is not characterized by an excess of pleasure. What it's characterized by is an excess of wanting, a desire for calories. So if you take two people, someone who's trim and someone who's obese, if you give them a milkshake, everyone thinks, oh, the obese person, they're gonna take a sip of that milkshake and just lose themselves and they'll just slip up the whole thing because they can't, you know, they just lose themselves in the pleasure. Not true. What we find is when it comes to actual pleasure impact, it's the trim person who enjoys the milkshake more. Where we see the difference with the person with obesity, it's when they see that milkshake, they go, I gotta have that thing, that looks amazing. So they get in the cycle where the milkshake looks amazing, it fills them with thoughts of delicious milkshakeness, and then they take a sip and it's like, oh, that wasn't as good as I thought. So they take another sip and it wasn't as good as I thought. So it's this, it's this miserable state of affairs where you're craving food, but the food that you eat never delivers the pleasure that was promised. There are so many paradigm shifts here. First of all, I mean, because especially in the the world, like the holistic health and the paleo movement and the whole low carb, like the whole, all of this world, the obesity literature, we often say that humans are driven to become fat because evolutionarily we had to, you know, stock up for times of scarcity. That's flat out wrong. And it's wrong in so many ways. That's like just such a paradigm shift because that is literally what everybody says, but it's so much more nuanced. I mean, based on what you just said. So, okay. So basically it's not that we are stocking up all the time for this scarcity that might happen. It's that our food today is so confusing and not matching up what we think it's going to have that it puts our bodies into a state of then needing to stock up because it doesn't know if it's going to have food. Yes, that's it. So, so this idea that, that we are kind of born, you know, we emerge from the womb craving more calories than we need, that's wrong for a bunch of reasons. One of the reasons that we can see that it's wrong is that, you know, if you think back in this, quote, state of nature when we were evolving, if we're carrying extra weight, well, it makes acceleration much more difficult to accelerate, much more difficult to come to a stop, much more difficult to, to turn quickly. So that means it's a lot harder to, to catch prey. It's also much easier to become prey, and you are a plumper, more luscious prey when you're carrying extra weight. But there's an even bigger reason why this doesn't make sense. And that is because if you live in a calorie scarce environment, where it's just not a lot of calories around, it's unpredictable. If you're carrying extra calories, you have to expend extra calories just to lug all that weight around. So you're carrying this kind of insurance. It means you have to eat 
It's like you're paying really, really high car insurance. You have to make more money to pay off that insurance. Well, it's the same thing. If you're carrying around all these extra calories, you have to eat extra food just to lug around those calories. It's a really inefficient approach to this whole idea of, the, of this idea that there's a calorie scarce environment. It's, it doesn't make sense. And I think, and also, I mean, just look at photos from the 70s. I love to do this. Like, find photos from the 60s or 70s of people, like, shopping. Or here's a good one. Look at, like, look at Woodstock, that, that, that massive concert they had in upstate New York. Or look at people at a beach holiday. Everybody is skinny. I mean, it's just, like, it's so funny to look at this. You're like, oh, my God, like, everyone is skinny. So if we were on this lifelong quest to stuff our faces, what was going on in the 70s? I mean, I mean it was right after that that this sort of obesity epidemic ensued. But before that, we weren't sitting there, you know, shoving food in our faces. Things were working properly. We were in a, in a, I would say, a healthy state of equilibrium with our food environment. And since then, things have gotten way out of control. It's a two-parter because, so one, the uncertainty is just making us want more and consequently eat more. But then those experiments that Dana did, which, I mean, they're just... I almost don't believe them. <laughs> like, I mean, basically this idea that she didn't either at first, she didn't believe it either. She's like, this can't be right. She repeated them because she, she was like, you. was like, Whoa, this, this can't be real. So it's funny. So when I first, cause I, I told you before we were recording that I keep mentioning your book on the intermittent fasting podcast. And the first time I brought it up, I was like, I just read this part of the book. And I, and I said on the show, I was like, I haven't actually went and read the study yet. So I don't know if I believe this, but this is what he says. And then I actually did go and read the study. The part about that study that is just so, so crazy is you would think, because I think for the second part of the arm, she, for the energy expenditure, the metabolic ward part where they're measuring the metabolism, I think she just used three drinks. You would think that regardless, even if your brain was thinking it was a different amount, you would think you would at least burn what your brain thought was in it, but she found that when it had way more than what the brain thought or even less, like the brain just didn't burn any. Like it, it just, we just shut down. It just threw up its hands up and it's like, I don't know what's going on, which is interesting. Yeah. And, and they don't, that's something they're looking into that, that maybe it has to do with the rate of gastric emptying, the physiology of how food is processed in the gut and by the brain and with hormones. It's so complex that there's just a lot that has yet to be learned, but, but you're right. That's what she found. It's just sort of when you got this mismatch, it just sort of threw its hands up and said, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Like, so like on the graph, the drink that closely matched what the person thought was in it, their resting, their energy, their metabolism went up. So they were burning calories. But for the drink that was like way more, it was similar to the drink that was way less, which that really makes you wonder when we have foods. Yeah. What happened to those calories? If I didn't burn them, like, where are they? And, and we don't know. Like, we think they probably wind up in the liver or something like that. It's, but it's not, it's not a good state of affairs. And it also makes you wonder, because there are a lot of foods today that aren't necessarily, like, sugar-free, but they'll be, like, they'll use, like, stevia or something, and they'll make it, like, half of the sweetness. So it makes you wonder, you might think you're lowering the sugar in processed food, but it might have a metabolic effect that we're not aware of where we're actually... That's a really good point. And, and this is a turn that the food environment has taken recently. For a long time, there was foods that were artificially sweetened. Like, it was like regular Coke and Diet Coke. One had lots of sugar, one had none. And now there's the middle. <laughs> now we're in the middle, which I think is much more dangerous because... And what's really done it is this, it, well, this isn't the sole reason, but one of the big contributing factors are these nutritional info panels, which I'm not against, but let's face it, most people 
have no clue how many calories they burn a day. So what do they do? They, they, let's say they're comparing two food items. One has 120 calories per serving. One has 80 or 95. And they think, well, I'll take the one that has 95 because everyone's been taught that they have to be mortally afraid of calories, even though you need calories to exist. So what that does is, the, you know, the food makers aren't stupid. They start to see like, okay, everybody's looking at the nutritional info panel. They're all going for lower calories. We know if we only use artificial sweeteners, it's going to have kind of a weird aftertaste. It's going to taste a bit fake. So let's just mix it up. We're going to use half the amount of sugar, three quarters of the amount of sugar, and we're going to dump in a little sucralose, maybe some ACE-K, maybe some stevia. We like stevia because it comes from a plant. Every, everything from a plant is pure and wholesome. Not true, but anyway. And so people don't realize that there's all these products now that are, are intentionally mismatched, where the perceived sweetness does not match the calorie payload. But we need to pull back for a second because I use sweetness as the example because that's where Dana Small has done this great research. But sweetness is just one way that our food is giving us mixed signals. There are so many others. There's, there's a family of additives called fat replacers. I talked about, you know, low fat, light, this. In the 80s and 90s, these were used for things that were light or low fat. But, but the food manufacturers have wisened up. And they're like, well, actually, everybody's kind of freaked out about calories. So they're putting this stuff in everything. I even found them in cream, in whipping cream. I want to buy whipping cream because I, I like to bake. My kids like to bake. And I'm looking, there's, there's fat replacers in them. There's fat replacers in microwave pizza. There's fat replacers. They're, they're, in, yo they're, they're in yogurts that look ordinary and wholesome. And you look at the ingredient list, you're like, what is this doing here? And, and part of the problem is artificial sweeteners, they're single compounds and they have words that we recognize like stevia, aspartame, sucralose. The fat replacers... It's much more complex to create this illusion of fat. You need like four or five things. They're called combination systems. And they have names that don't really frighten us. They have names like carrageenan. Uh, one of them's called milk protein. Well, this is a this is the, the industry term for milk or the industry brand name for this substance called milk protein is called Simpless. And this was discovered, I'm Canadian, this was discovered in Canada, I think it was 1978, a scientist working for a, a beer company he tried to turn whey, that's the stuff that's left over when you make cheese. You've got your curd, that becomes the cheese, and you've got whey, which is this liquid stuff. He tried to turn that into a gelatin. And what he got was this styrofoam-like material that tasted a bit like, like cream cheese or cheesecake. And what he found was it was tiny, tiny little balls of protein that were sort of tickling the nerves in your mouth and creating this, your brain's like, hey, that, that seems like fat. It mimicked the sensation of fat. So it was bought by Nutraceet. They, they released it as a additive called Simpless. Of course, you never see that ingredient panel. Food scientists refer to it as a microparticulated protein. You don't see that in the ingredient panel. You'll see something called whey protein or milk protein, which sounds like like cheese, it sounds like it came from a farm, milk protein, that sounds good, right? So this is one of the reasons that people are totally unaware that these things are being added to all sorts of fruit, or fruit, food. Fat replacers are another way, so much of the processed food we eat has got these sensory signals that diverge from the nutrition. There's also things like emulsifiers, that, and these are done so that there's all sorts of things you do to food when you process it so like, like it doesn't separate. So if you make chocolate milk, it doesn't separate. So you've got like the chocolate on top and the milk on the bottom. These things also have a sensory effect. So essentially, you know, there's been all these studies that have come out that are showing that, you know, processed food, ultra-processed food really is different. People do seem to eat more of it and the way the body reacts to it is different. And the question is, what is it about processing? It's not just, it's, it's not something about it being in a factory that messes up food. What is it? My thesis is it's when the sensed nutrition 
deviates from the actual nutrition that we really start to run into problems. And this is a characteristic of the modern food environment. This happened very rarely up until about 50 years ago when we started to develop technology that really started to alter the sensory aspects of the food that we eat, which is just to say how it tastes, how it smells, the flavor and the taste. That is what we've changed in food and that is what is confusing our brains. You talk about just how smart our brains are with normally, you know, figuring all this out. Like I had never thought about this before, but you're talking about the role of these fake fats and such. And you talk about how butter, like real butter, for example, tastes like, or feels heavier than water, but it's not. And I was like, oh, that's so true. There's a whole separate universe for food because we talk about foods being light and foods being heavy. Well, we talk about something that's really rich with fat. Like, like, let's just say you put a tablespoon of butter in your mouth. We'd say that's really rich, right? Well, you put like uh, half a cup of water in your mouth. You say, well, it's, it's, it's light. It's, it's empty. It's nothing. It's just water. Well, you put that butter in the water, it will float. So in the world of physics, butter is lighter than water. But your brain is so smart that in the world of your mouth, those, those roles just swap. And your, your brain's like, no, no, it's the butter that's heavy. Because now it's thinking not in terms of mass. It's thinking in terms of calories. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, 
It actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. But there are people who do eat processed foods who seemingly don't have a problem with their weight. Can our brains evolve to know that these things are lies and then be okay with it? It's a good question. I, I think like everything always, there's always going to be a distribution, right? Nothing affects all people the same way. So if you look at something like COVID, it affects some people differently than it does others. If you look at something like alcohol, it affects some people. Some people get drunk really easily. Some people have a great resistance. Some people become alcoholics. They're more prone to alcoholism than others. So everything affects people differently. So you're always going to find that there's like a curve or a distribution. I think also, and, and this is where things start to get interesting. I think when you talk about uncertainty, I think that uncertainty in life itself can kind of gang up with uncertainty that's in your food environment. So if you think of something like, if you take a teenage girl and let's say her parents get divorced and she starts a new school and she's being bullied, these are all aspects of uncertainty that are negative, that cause real anxiety. And some people say, you know, that causes people to emotionally eat. Well, what if you also couple that with a food environment where she thinks she's getting calories where she's not? I, I think there's these things blend together. That's the thing that's so complex about psychology. These things become woven together in a way that can be really difficult to kind of tease them apart. But I think it all does work in concert, which is part of what makes the world we live in is so complex that we can see broad trends, but then on an individual level, it's really hard to predict exactly who's going to get affected by what in which different way. Now I can finally go back to the initial, the reason I brought up this whole topic, we were talking about the, the VOCs. So do we not encounter this uncertainty with real foods, like for the example of the VOCs and things tasting sweeter than they actually are? No, I don't think so. Well, let's put it this way. Let's say that we're true, that there's some, a little bit of mismatch in the, in the natural world. It's just a little bit. It's, it's, it's just the case of certain fruits in a particular time of season when they're really good. There's a bit of mismatch happening. I think the brain can handle some. You're talking about the difference in a food environment where there's like a little bit here and there versus a food environment where it's just utter total chaos where nothing is what it seems. But I think the case of what's called sweet enhanced volatiles is different than the mismatch that Dana Small was studying. Because I, I think what the 
the scientists who've studied that haven't yet shown is that there's a disentangling the pleasure of that tomato from the sweetness. So it's almost like that tomato tastes so good that the pleasure spills over into the perceived sweetness. But I think that's a very different kind of difference in perception than you get with something like stevia or or sucralose or aspartame. They both deal with sweetness, but but it's, I mean, but very different. Okay. Yeah, that would make sense. And you can also... If you talk about something like fat replacers, like a cynic could say, okay, well, what about like a classic French gravy where you you make a roux, where you, you melt butter, and then you put flour in, and then you add liquid, and this creates a thick sauce. Well, isn't that like a fat replacer? Isn't that confusing your brain? And you say, okay, maybe it is. But 50 years ago, the food environment, okay, you had a few sauces here and there. There was a little bit of mismatch happening, but but that just cannot be compared to the world that we're you know, young people are being thrust into where there's just this long list of additives, which is confusing the brain in every possible way. And also with this evolution of liking versus wanting, do you have thoughts on the ratio or the effects of how much, because you were talking earlier about how we try something that we want and then it doesn't taste as good as we think it does. Do you know to what extent that is from the actual food itself, like all the food today, and then maybe the food actually becoming nutritionally blander versus us being so exposed and over-flavoring, and we can maybe talk about spices, like putting lots of spices, and just not being used to it? Like So, so by comparison, things taste blander compared to like modern food, and maybe it's not that bland, or is the food actually blander today? like whole foods. Oh, whole foods are blander today. I, I think that's that, that's certain. You know, that's why there's chefs like Dan Barber that are working so hard to to develop, you know, varieties of wheat and vegetables that have flavor back in them. And I talked about a scientist at the University of Florida, Harry Klee, who's trying to get flavor back into tomatoes. But as far as the situation we get into where where the brain gets coaxed into this this desire for food, I, I think that is the effect of processing that's learned over time. You know, when you're exposed to it for long enough, it induces this response. They often talk about how fast the taste buds turn over. Do you know how long that takes? Oh, no, I, I did. This is one of those, yeah, because like if you burn your tongue, it's, you know, it's, it, it's not months before you can take, you know, it, it happens pretty quickly. I don't know if you know, do you know if the actual literal turnover of the taste buds have has any effects with learning or unlearning our wanting? I don't think so. I think it's the foods. Yeah. If listeners' minds are not blown already, there's something else you talk about in the end of craving that is affecting all of this. And it's not flavors, and it's not sweeteners, and it's not fat replacers. It's something that, oh my goodness. I, I have to say, when I was reading The End of Craving, it reads like a mystery novel. I literally wrote down, this This feels like a thriller. Like reading the opening, I don't know if it was the opening chapter, but when you're talking about the Pellegra epidemic and then how Italy compares today to the U.S., that, there wasn't really a question there, but um, <laughs> what did you find with the uh, the Pellegra epidemic and the implications of that? Yes. So b- before I will preface all this by saying it's leading to a place that on the surface sounds totally nuts. And for so long, I resisted it. I was like, this can't be right. And eventually the, the data became so, the evidence became so overwhelming that it's, it. and I've shown it to many scientists and, and I'm actually working with a scientist at Mount Sinai in New York City to do some pilot investigation with rodents. Okay. But I want to talk, I'm going to set this all up by talking about Italy. And by talking about the fact that we tend to be very suspicious of pleasure in North America. We say, if it tastes good, spit it out. We say food is addictive because it tastes good. 
And that, in fact, is a very, that's a misread of addiction. Addiction is typically a situation where the pleasure is all drained from an experience. But I want to talk about Italy. If delicious food is what makes us eat, well, then Italy is a particularly interesting place, northern Italy in particular, a city called Bologna, which that might ring a bell because we've all heard of Bologna. Some people call it Bologna. Well, that's where it comes from comes from Bologna, where it's called mortadella. And it looks a little bit like good old-fashioned American bologna, but it's got these big cubes of white fat that you can actually see. And the citizens of Bologna are food-obsessed. They have a chamber of commerce where they have a repository of official recipes, where if you're going to make something like lasagna, you have to make it this way. If you make something like tortellini, you have to make it this way. They love food. They have two groups that almost look like religious orders. One are called the Apostles of the Tagliatella, and they're talking about their favorite noodle, which looks like fettuccine, and it's made with the two substances we've been living in fear of, eggs and flour, carbs and fat. And the other is a, a group of men, and they're talking about opening up to women that worship tortellini, which is this little, trying, uh, beautiful little dumpling filled with mortadella and pork and cheese that they put in this broth that must be made from a barnyard chicken that is just absolutely delicious. Well, everybody knows Italian food tastes great. Italy is the number one destination in the world for food tourism. People fly there by the plane load just to eat what the locals eat. They'll, they just want to sit next to a local and say, I'm going to have what that guy's having. The food is incredible. I've been there. It's, it is like that steak I had in Chile, a life-changing experience. Well, if delicious food were the cause of our problems, you would expect that the citizens of Bologna would be literally ultra-fat. What we see is the very opposite. Northern Italy, the northern Italians are, are even skinnier than their southern Italian brothers and sisters. And in southern Italy, they actually eat a diet closer to the Mediterranean diet, more olive oil, more fish, more beans. Northern Italy, it's like, like salami and cream and cheese and pasta and pork fat. It is rich, rich food. And yet they are the skinniest in the Western world. They have a rate of obesity that is less than 8%. They're eating this rich, incredibly delicious food. And they are skinnier than Americans were in the early 1960s. I mean, it doesn't make sense. This tells us something. I mean, we're not getting something right. So this led me to go, okay, like what's going on with Northern Italy? And I start to see what are the differences and I start to turn back the clock, and what I actually found was that there was a point of great similarity. And that is about a hundred, little more than a hundred years ago, Northern Italy was very, very much like the American South. They were both backward, they were both very agricultural kind of economies, and they were both suffering from plagues of a disease called pellagra. These were epidemics, which is to say they were spreading, they were uncontrolled. It appeared first in Italy, and it would start almost always with a farmer, or usually the farmer's wife. And it would start with this, like, like the skin scale on the back of their hands, and they would spread. It would happen in the spring. That would go away, and it would come back the next year, and it would spread. And eventually, like, they, their hands would become hideous, and they would, they, they would get horrible diarrhea. They'd lose their appetite. They'd become sort of delirious, demented. They would attack children, and then they would die. And nobody knew the cause. It's sort of similar to the uh, epidemic of obesity, that you had all these experts that were sure that they knew what the problem was. Some of them said it's because people live too close to a river— or they thought there were spores that get into their blood and ignite. Or they thought they were eating rotten food. They just, they had the most bizarre theories. Well, then in 1904, Pelagra shows up in Georgia. And just like Italy, it starts to spread. It becomes a pandemic. It starts to spread from state to state. 
And there was all sorts of theories in America. They said it was carried by sandflies. Some people said, no, it's carried by mosquitoes. All the scientists were sure they knew it was right, and they kept fighting amongst each other. And meanwhile, it's spreading. Nobody can stop it. Well, finally, an epidemiologist named Joseph Goldberger is dispatched to Tennessee. He goes to a sanatorium, and he everyone thinks this guy's just flat out nuts because he says, don't change a thing. Don't clean the sheets. Don't, don't clean up that vomit in the corner. I want people to eat differently. And he starts like saying people should be, you know, having milk with dinner. They should eat beans. They should have like meat. And I was like, this guy's a fool. It's clearly an infectious disease. And lo and behold, six months later, there's only one case of pellagra left. He thinks it has to do with food. He actually manages to create pellagra. He, he, uh, he takes a group of prisoners and he puts them on a diet that he says will cause pellagra. And this is a diet of, of what poor people ate back then. It was cornmeal, grits, the Italians call it polenta, pork fat, and molasses. Very calorie-rich diet. And he succeeded. This, this uh, pellagra squad, as it was known in the, in the prison, developed pellagra. And this was a crucial development in the history of nutrition because it, it, we began to understand that there are vital elements in food that are necessary for survival. They were initially called vital amines, and then they became known as vitamins. The lack of the vitamin causing pellagra was what we call niacin, or vitamin B3. And this is where stuff starts to get really interesting, is when you look at how America approached nutritional deficiency and how Italy approached it. America put on its lab coat and was really smart and said, well, if the people need niacin, let's give them niacin if they don't know what to eat. And, and what they saw was basically a flaw that people, A, don't know what to eat, and B, well, food is kind of like, you can't rely on it. It doesn't have what you, what you think it might have. So they started putting niacin along with thiamine and riboflavin, two other B vitamins. First, it was put into white bread, and then it started to spread into pasta, into rice, into flour. And they started, they added iron as well. This is called enrichment, which is the same as fortification, but it's called enrichment when the government does it. It's called fortification when a company does it. And it worked beautifully. I mean, pellagra, the cases just fell off a cliff. Almost overnight, pellagra disappeared. Poof, gone. What an amazing marriage of science and public policy that would, that would define the coming 20th century. This powerhouse of science lifting the veil on how food and the body interacted. Well, then you go and look at what Italy did. And it's almost hilarious in, to, to compare because it was like the king put his, you know, half-witted nephew in, in charge of nutrition and public policy because they didn't say, oh, let's start putting niacin in the polenta. They said things like, well, maybe uh, we should cook bread in communal ovens and, oh, we should tell poor people that they should raise rabbits because rabbits are a cheap form of meat. And, and people would even say, well, if you have pellagra, what you should have is a nice glass of red wine, which is just like hilarious. It just seems so characteristically Italian. Those Europeans, there's, there's, there's a beauty to it, but there's just kind of an inherent stupidity, isn't there? Well, maybe not, because they didn't know this at the time, but telling someone to drink a glass of red wine was actually a pretty good idea, because the wines back then were unfiltered, and they had lots of yeast. Yeast is packed with niacin. So if you had pellagra, drinking a glass of red wine was actually a really smart thing to do. Not that they would have known the scientific reasons for it. But what's so interesting about the Italian experience is that they also got rid of pellagra. It didn't happen as quickly, but the Italian, northern Italy ate its way out of a vitamin deficiency. Well, let's forward, fast forward the clock 100 years, and wow, do things ever look different, because the American South graduated from one nutritional disaster to another. It went from being the pellagra belt, as it was once known, now it's called the obesity belt.
or the diabetes belt. And the lesson of the South would seem to tell us what we think we know is that you just can't win with food. You're either going to starve or you're going to fulfill your evolutionary destiny and just stuff your face and eat yourself in an early grave. Well, then you look at Italy. And you say, hold on a second, look at these people. They're, they're eating this incredible pasta. They're eating this wonderful risotto. They're eating these great salumis and these incredible cheeses. They're eating food that is so delicious, everybody wants to travel and eat the delicious food that they're eating. And their rate of obesity is less than 8%. What on earth is going on? And then I ask the question, well, could it have something to do with putting vitamins in your processed carbs? And and this is where things start to sound nuts. It's like, vitamins? Are you serious? You're going to accuse vitamins, which have no calories. Vitamins have no calories. You're going to accuse them of playing a role in the obesity epidemic? Well, the answer is yes, I am. Because I want us to look back at that pellagra diet. Remember I talked about what those prisoners were fed? They were fed grits, that's cornmeal, pork fat, and molasses, carbs, fat, and sugar. It's hard to imagine a more calorie-rich diet. How is it that a person could literally starve on a diet of pure calories? Well, the answer is that we have a fundamental misunderstanding of calories. We liken calories to energy, like, like when you plug in your phone and start to suck energy out of the socket. We think that's what calories are. We think calories like the gasoline that you pump into your car, and that's not true because calories need certain micronutrients in order to be metabolized. They need specifically certain B vitamins. Niacin's a big one. So is riboflavin. So is thiamine. And where this all came together for me was when I started to look at pig farming in the 1950s. Because around the late 40s, early 50s, pig farmers knew that if you wanted to get your, you know, what, and, and what we got to remember here is what does a pig farmer want to do? They want to get their pigs big and fat quickly so they can get a new bunch of piglets in there and get them big and fat quickly. The faster they can do that, the faster their turnover, the more money they make. Well, back in the late 40s, early 50s, American pig farmers knew if you want to get your pig big and fat super quick, you feed them corn with some soy, and that's like rocket fuel. But you got to be careful, because if that's all you feed them, it actually, they fall off a cliff, and they stop gaining, and then their hair falls out, and they get diarrhea, and they start, like, they can't walk. They would start to get a pig version of pellagra, a nutritional deficiency. They knew that corn and soy was a rocket fuel feed, but if that's all you gave them, it wasn't going to work. They had to balance the diet. So they would send them out to pasture. Back then, all pork was pastured. They would go out to pasture. They would eat green feeds like alfalfa, which balanced the diet. They would get the vitamins and minerals they needed. So they knew that this rocket fuel on its own needed to be balanced. Well, the invention of vitamins forever changed everything. We talk about confinement farming, CAFOs, feedlots. All of that would have never happened without the discovery and understanding of how vitamins worked. Because now you could take your pig and you could stick it behind a fence and you could give it all the corn and soy in the world and you just dust in these B vitamins and guess what? Doesn't need the alfalfa, doesn't need the green feed. It can eat as much of that rocket fuel feed it wants and it will get big and fat faster than ever. And this changed farming. I found pamphlets from the University of Iowa where they said, you know, the pig has a reasonable ability to balance its diet, but there is a better way. This is what changed farming. They talked about optimal weight gain. How do you achieve optimal weight gain? You feed your pigs processed carbs with a powdering, a dusting in of these B vitamins. That's what makes pigs get big and fat faster than ever before. Well, pigs get big and fat really fast. So do humans. 
for pigs, for pig farmers, for industrial pig production, that's a good thing. I don't think it's a good thing if you can eat those pigs, but that's a good thing. For humans, it's a really bad thing. Our big problem is we get big and fat too quickly. Well, what did we do? We did the same thing to our food that pig farmers did to pig feed in the 50s. We started adding B vitamins to our processed carbs. And it started with this government program of enrichment, but now it's everywhere. In the United States, there is voluntary fortification. That means companies can pump this stuff in. Look at, a, look at the side of a cereal box and look at all the vitamins. Those are being put there. They're not there naturally. They're put there for a reason because people, they just don't know better. And they look at them, oh, look at all these vitamins. This must be really healthy. My daughter bought an energy drink. This is like the worst drink imaginable. Not only was it mismatched in that it had sugar and sucralose in it, it had 200% of the vitamin B6 that an adult needs. Why would anyone need double? But we're so naive that we think, well, if 100% is good, 200% it must be better, right? We, so we have saturated our food environment with processed carbs, with cheap calories, but we've also, we've also added in the B vitamins necessary to process those calories. The vitamins are a rate-limiting step for calorie metabolism. So if you're going to have, so niacin is particularly interesting because you need niacin to metabolize fructose. Well, what's, you know, fructose is a very controversial sugar. People have written books about it. Fructose is in table sugar. It's also in high fructose corn syrup. Well, if you're going to have a diet that's really high in sugar, which is to say fructose, you know, sucrose, high fructose corn syrup, you need to have a diet by definition that's high in niacin. Well, maybe it doesn't make sense that we are dumping niacin into bread, into breakfast cereal, into energy drinks. We're putting it in everything. So this is sort of the other half of the thesis is that we have not only confused the brain and make it want to consume calories, we our, our food environment is filled with empty calories and the metabolic potential to process those in the form of those B vitamins. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight, it's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. This is so crazy. So many thoughts. Do you know Bill Schindler? I don't. So he wrote a book called Eat Like a Human. And he actually, I think it's a whole chapter on pellagra because he talks about why it even started in the first place and because of the role of 
such a hard word, nixtamalization. Are you familiar? Yes. Yeah. So he has a whole chapter on that. Yeah. So Native North Americans, the the, the uh, First Nations people, they would add ash or lye. They would add something to corn flour that would release. It actually has niacin in it, but it's molecularly bound. So they would add something that would release it. Of course, they didn't know that there was a molecular, you know, what was happening on a molecular level. What they understood was that it, it made a better dough and they preferred the taste. So they had a way of doing that. But that, that technology was lost as, as you know, the, the land was colonized and corn was taken as a crop and grown. So it, so when it was brought to Europe, they had no idea to do that. And they were, they were eating corn that had bound nice and, they, and their bodies couldn't extract. So does Italy fortify their food now? No, they don't. Wow. Neither does France. Neither does South Korea, neither does Japan. These are all kind. I mean, if you if you start to look at the countries that fortify versus not, you, you start to see there's a, a nice trend in terms of the countries that fortify and enrich are fatter than the ones that don't. Did you come up with this idea? Yeah. I mean, I, it occurred to me when I did the Dorito effect, because I was talking to Fred Provenza about how, remember how the flavor was matched with the vitamin? And and then I thought, well, what if it works the other way around, that putting vitamins into something is going to have an effect? And, and the, other, the other reason it occurred to me is because there's this kind of lore in sort of the, the, the world of people who like natural food that they say that the feedlot diet is empty calories, that the cattle are just munching on empty corn. Excuse me, there's no vitamins. And I talked to a feedlot nutritionist. He said, no, that's not true at all. If you don't put in the vitamins, they don't gain weight. You need, but it's not all the vitamins. It's certain vitamins for them to gain weight. And that's when I thought, okay, that's interesting because that's not what people think. We also talk in our world, we talk about people eating empty calories. You talk about people, all the soda people drink. There's some people that drink like six cans of soda a day. It's nuts. And we say, these are empty calories. On some level, that's true. Like if, like if you look at a can of Pepsi or a can of Coke or ginger ale, it's just sugar. There's, there's not a whole lot of micronutrients happening. So they must be getting the micronutrients from somewhere. Because if really, if our diet was just empty calories, we would be like those Southerners with pelagra. We'd be super skinny and having terrible diarrhea. But that's the, the truth is, we're getting enough of the calorie metabolizing vitamins to enable obesity. Uh, so obesity requires certain amount of micronutrients just to be metabolically viable. Is it just that the vitamins are the switch that makes it possible to live on processed foods and then you gain the weight from the processed foods? Or does it also linearly track where if you add more vitamins, do you get fatter? It, it's a really good question because people, you know, some people use niacin as a heart medication. They'll get like a super, super big dose. So, so shouldn't those people become super, super fat? I think this is complex. This is a story about the food that you're exposed to from a very young age. And it's a piece of the pie. I think if you want an obesogenic diet, you need a lot of calories. You also need the vitamins. I mean, there are obese people in Italy. It's much, much rare. It's very rare to have things like extreme obesity just because I think it's harder to pull off. You've got to work a lot harder to get the nutrients in your body. Whereas here, our food is, is just more like that rocket fuel feed by its very nature. The question is, does adding, does this enrichment or fortification, is it enough on its own? It, it, it might be in part, like, like when they added that to the pig diet, those pigs got big and fatter quickly, more quickly. But at the same time, I think there's all sorts of other things we're also doing. Things like mismatch, things like adding flavorings, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd have to look at it again, but I, I think in one of the pig studies, I think it showed that the more vitamins they added, 
the fatter they got. Well, what was really interesting was there was a study I looked at where they they looked at pigs in confinement and they looked at pigs on pasture. And they had two groups of pigs on pasture, one getting what's called a mixed ration, where the the food and the vitamins are all mixed together, and one where there was like like the corn and soy in one bunk and, and the, the vitamins and protein added were in this other one. And then there was alfalfa. And what they found in that one was that the pigs just weren't really seeming to eat the vitamin supplement. And they're like, that's weird. Where's it coming from? And it, the answer is the alfalfa. So it's like when you added the, when you enriched their feed, it sort of turned off the desire to eat the green feed, the good stuff, the alfalfa. When you didn't enrich it, which is to say when they were just eating, you know, the corn by itself, then this, it's like this desire to eat alfalfa would spring up and they would go and eat it. So I think the other thing that's troubling about this is that when we're adding this stuff to our food, it might literally be turning off this little switch that we, you know, to eat good stuff because we're getting it in kind of a trick, a shortcut way that is, uh, it's like a cheat. You also talk about scurvy and the idea if those sailors had been given vitamins, like would they never have craved fruit. Yeah. So this is really important because, you know, people, if they recognize the term scurvy, it'll be from like a history class where they, you know, we talked about British sailors. They, I mean, they, they, horrible, horrible experiences with scurvy. They would get on a long ocean voyages. They weren't getting enough vitamin C. And everybody always talks about the fact that their gums swelled up. And that's one thing that happened. And they swelled up horrifically. Like their, their teeth would like, s- like swing in their mouth. The old wounds that had been healed for decades would open up again. But the thing that the history books never talk about, but if you research it, is that one of the very first symptoms of scurvy was a craving for fruits and vegetables. Um, these sailors would have dreams of gorging on fruits and vegetables only to wake up and, and they would start weeping when they realized it was a dream. They would look into the ocean and see these heads of coral and their minds would transform them into cabbages and oranges. So the sailors back then, the, the medical doctors back then had no clue and they came up with all these idiotic theories, but the sailors knew exactly what they needed. And when they would get into port, they would, I mean, there's a story of a British ship. It was called the Centurion. It washed up on Juan Fernandez Islands. I think it was like 1763 or something. They were just at awful scurvy and they scrambled to shore and they started eating moss and wild turnips. And they talked about how incredibly good they tasted. And of course, moss and wild turnips don't taste good if you're on all fours, you know, yanking them out of the ground. It's because their brains knew what they needed and, and their idea of what tasted good adjusted to what their body needed. That's how smart your brain is. And if you let things run properly, we are perfectly enabled to nourish ourselves. But boy, have we got things screwed up in the world we live in now. So what are your thoughts on the effects of, say a person is not eating processed foods, they're eating a whole foods diet, but they're taking multivitamins. Do you think that messes with the brain's perception? It's a good question. And I'd say we need to do more research. But the other thing I'll say is, unless your doctor has told you you need to take a vitamin for a specific reason, like let's say you don't absorb vitamin B12 properly, which is a problem some people have, don't take, there's no, there's no research that shows that multivitamins are in any way beneficial. And there's a lot of research that shows, there's some research that suggests that it could be contributing to obesity with pregnant women. They did rat studies and they found that when rats were given a very high vitamin diet, their pups looked good, but the rat moms never really lost the weight that they gained in pregnancy, which is a a problem a lot of women find. And the rat pups, even though they looked pretty healthy when they were born, would go on to, it's it's like they were doomed to become more obese. So I, I put it this way, vitamins have this status. They're kind of like the forest elves of the nutrition world. They're just seen as being benevolent and good. It's like they, they just want to wrap you in this nourishing hug. And, and nothing is that simple. Nothing is by its nature good or bad. It's all dose dependent. We need water to survive, but you can kill yourself by drinking too much water. 
We need calories to survive, but many people are dying today because they consume too many calories. Any drug, drugs can help you heal. If you overdose on them, they will kill you. So everything is about dose and everything is about context. And, and we need to think, well, I, I would put it this way. Your brain intuitively knows how complex the food world is. I just wish we'd, if you could leave the brain to its own devices and just subject it to really good, wholesome food, I think things would be much better. I, I don't want to make it seem as though, you know, we'd be back into some kind of paradise. And of course there was disease and all that sort of thing. But I think that the degree that we're messing with some of the core properties of food through processing is really playing a significant role in the very disordered relationship people have with food today. I'm super, super curious in your book writing process and working with your publisher and everything and coming up with a title, because there's nothing in the title about this. Did you want to include anything about this in the title, the vitamins and the fortification for the end of craving? Well, it's, you know, it was, a, it was a difficult book to find a title for because it's so much about, I, I think our philosophical approach in, the, in, in North America is so wrong. You know, the fundamental difference between Italy and America is that America said there's something wrong with people because they don't know what's good for them. And there's something wrong with food because food is by its nature incomplete. So we have to step in and fix what's wrong with food in order to curb our own ill nature that we don't know what's good for us. And by our nature, we eat too much. And that is what's responsible for so many of the technological developments of food, artificial sweeteners, fat replacers. And even I would say this trend towards plant-based meats, which is just the latest iteration of we can do it better than nature. There's never been any reason to think that that's true. I think what's so interesting is if you look at the Italian approach, they didn't see food as the problem. They saw food as the cure. They said the problem isn't, is that poor people don't have access to good food. And if you look at Italy today, I mean, you'd think, you know, that, that they have these rules about how to make food and they have like these rules about if you're going to like San Marzano tomato, it's got to be a certain kind of tomato grown in a certain area. And these are all kind of cute rules and we talk about terroir and what a great place to go and eat but we think there's something kind of cute about it but the truth is it's a much much better way of eating so I, I guess my outlook is that we have to understand that we evolved to eat food and maybe one day we'll be so smart that we can do a decent job of knocking off food but i don't think we're anywhere close to that and i think this idea that we can do it better than nature has only gotten us into trouble do you have thoughts on why some people have genetics or evolved to be super tasters? I'm a super taster. And the woman I talked about, Linda Bartoshuk, who did some of the work on tomatoes, that was her discovery. Super tasters, it's a kind of a misleading term. Essentially, it just means that you have a greater sensitivity to bitterness. So some people think super tasters are like they're gourmets. They just walk around like, and food's like a drug for them. That's not true at all. They're just more sensitive to bitter compounds. So one, like, I can't stand IPA beers. They're just way too bitter for me. They, like, it's like drinking bong water. It's disgusting. I can't stand it. I, that's because of the bitter receptors I have. Not everybody has those. I think we'll find that there's differences in all sorts of modes of the sensory system, in, including for, for what we smell. There's just genetic differences in all of us. And then speaking of taste, I, so one of my favorite parts, was it in, I think it was in the end of craving when you talked about the dinner that you had where you tried to get just basically the best flavored. Oh, that was at the end of the Dorito effect where I tried to, yes, yeah. It's very rare that I laugh out loud while reading a book. There are parts of that I was laughing out loud. Like when you were talking about smuggling, you were like trying to smuggle something over the border. Oh, I had to get some tomatoes from Toronto to California because there was a guy in California growing the tomatoes, but they had like this historically bad year and the tomatoes just were not ripening. So I had to get some tomatoes from Toronto to 
Northern California. And oh my God, was that impossible? Like filling out the extensive paperwork. And I didn't think they were going to make it, but I somehow got them through. I'm just wondering, so that actual dinner that you ended up having, what was that experience like? Because what is it like when we actually do seek out the food that is the ultimate in flavor and does it correlate to nutrition? And what are the effects? Like, do you get fuller faster? Yeah. So so this was a dinner that I put on that was basically to say that we can turn this terrible trend around and that we can actually grow chickens to be flavorful and we can grow tomatoes to be flavorful and we can grow strawberries to be flavorful. And this was, and we can grow better chocolate. And this, I got all these ingredients together and a chef at the Coloring Institute of America, Larry Forgione, put together this wonderful meal. And it's just basically to say, like, if we build it, people will come that, that, that we can grow food to be delicious and wholesome and not just grow a lot of it. And I think we've all had this experience. I think one of the problems is we have an inadequate vocabulary to talk about the way food makes us feel because some people will say, like, Doritos are delicious. Well, and a glass of a fine glass of red wine is delicious. Two very, very different experiences. One just makes you want to eat more. And one is this more immersive experience, contemplative. I think that is what food should be like. When you eat food, you shouldn't be sort of ratcheted into this excited kind of, I want more. I want to stuff my face. It should be more immersive. It should be, it should be more like the food is taking you on a journey. So, I mean, there's a reason we call it junk food because on an intuitive level, we know it's junk. And we've all had that experience where you have, a, a, you know, like satiety. There's two different kinds of satiety. You can stop eating because you're like, Ugh, I feel sick. I feel stuffed. This is gross. Or you can have a, this experience of satiety where the meal just naturally comes to an end. You've had enough to eat. You move on. It's not that you feel like uncomfortable and that your gut is distended. You had enough to eat. That's an increasingly rare experience for a lot of people, but it's not to say it's impossible. We just need to eat food that that nourishes us and and sort of pushes the right buttons inside our body. Well, I think listeners can now understand why your work is just the most mind-blowing, incredible, amazing thing. Are you working on your next book? I'm still in the early stages of research, so we'll see where that takes me. We didn't even remotely touch on everything. Was there anything else that you thought was important to share with listeners about all of this? I would just say, you know, it's not exactly a new message to say that everybody should eat real food, but I what the one thing I would add to that is eat like an Italian. Food is one of the most wonderful things there is. It nourishes us and it gives us pleasure at least three times a day. And I, th I think we can set the ship right by eating the kind of food we ought to eat. And, and, and when food pleasures us the, the way it should, it's a wonderful experience. And, and we, we're, you know, we're losing our grip on that, but I think we can get it back. So the last question that I ask on the show and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is, but it actually sort of relates to what you just said, because it has to do with taking in the moment and experiencing something. What is something that you're grateful for? I would say I'm grateful that my parents exposed me to wonderful food when I was growing up, that that basically this all started because like with that steak, I like eating good food. And it's a pretty selfish journey, you could say in that regard, but it just made me ask, I think, fundamental and important questions. So I'm thankful for them for exposing me to great food and and making it such an important part of my life. Well, I love that. Well, thank you so much, Mark. This was so amazing. Like I said, your books are just, I mean, because I read so many books and I love all the guests that I have on the show, but you are talking about so many things that nobody is talking about. I mean, it's just profound. So thank you so much for what you're doing. How can listeners best follow your work? I think reading the books, you know, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, but uh, I don't have a whole lot of good things to say about social media. You know, books are wonderful because that's just the best medium. If you've got an important, complex message, if you've really got an important story to tell, 
the book is the best way. So I think if people are interested in these subjects, read the books. I hope, you know, if they react similarly the way you do, I hope it'll be something that um, is meaningful for them. Awesome. Well, for listeners, we will put links to all of those books and there will be a full transcript as well in the show notes. And again, the show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash end of craving. Thank you so much again, Mark. This was amazing. I will eagerly follow all that you write and hopefully we can connect again in the future. That's great. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the interview. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.